1: And when you follow the incredible adventures of Margaret Eustace, you have to wonder how many other stories like that are there out there that remain to be discovered and remain to be told.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Robert Scott Davis, talking about the surprising second act in the life of Margaret Eustace. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War, and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones. Available wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is historian Robert Scott Davis, talking about the second act in the life of Margaret Eustace. You may be familiar with that name. Previously, one of our contributors, John L. Smith Jr., wrote an article on the earlier life of Margaret Eustace. And this is a great example of how synergy and scholarship, scholarship, academia, and inspiration can build on each other. In a lot of ways, Robert Scott Davis' article is a sequel to John Smith's article, but it also stands alone by itself pretty well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Robert Scott Davis. Robert Scott Davis, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, sir. Glad to be here.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Uh, All my life, I've loved history stories. And uh, when I grew up, I wanted to find the stories nobody has discovered, solve the mysteries nobody uh, has been able to solve. And I write, I publish records to help people with their family trees in genealogy journals and books. And I find history stories that need to be told and mysteries that need to be solved. And I publish those in historical books and journals. And I've been honored with a lot of awards for my research in both of those fields.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, I'm always looking for more stories and more records to publish and stuff of that sort. And everybody who does research on the American Revolution in Georgia is drawn to the collections at the University of Georgia in the um, uh, Hargrett Library. And everybody who does the American Revolution in Georgia, we go through the Keith Reed Collection. And all, everyone who goes through the Keith Reed Collection finds this letter of January seventeenth, 1779, where General Sa- Samuel Elbert, is writing to Major General Benjamin Lincoln. And in this letter, Elbert says that the British commander who is conquering Georgia, Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell, that his sister is with Elbert and his sister, Margaret Eustace, wants to cross the British lines to be with her brother, Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell, and to see her son who is traveling with Campbell as an officer in the British Army. And this is an incredible letter. And so I looked into the background of the letter, and I. this is when things really begin to get weird. First off, Margaret Eustace did not have a brother named Archibald Campbell. And the Archibald Campbell, who's invaded Georgia and is on his way to Augusta with British battalions, uh, he had no sisters. And Margaret Eustace did not have a son, in the British Army. So what is going on here? And one of two things, either Samuel Elbert got the details badly mixed up in his letter, or Margaret Eustace has cleverly crafted some lies in order to get across the British lines and reach Savannah. Now, she did have an interesting, a fascinating family. One of her brothers was a major general in the American Army. Two of her brothers were officers of the British Army. Uh, She had a son who was in the Army, but he was in the American Army. His name was John Sky Eustace, but he was in the American Army, a very prominent officer in the American Army. He would later become a prominent officer under Napoleon. And at the moment that Margaret Eustace is trying to get a pass to go through the British lines, her son, John Sky Eustace, is actually serving under Samuel Elbert in the American Army. Now, she also had a a son-in-law, John Seth Colbert, who was married to her famous or infamous daughter, Kitty uh, Eustace Blair. But anyway, that's what drew me into the letter, and the deeper I get into it, the more fascinating the story became.
0: You mentioned already John Smith's previous article on Margaret Eustace. How did that inspire your your research in your new article?
1: Of course, when you're doing anything on the American Revolution, you need to go to the free online journal, the Journal of the American Revolution. And uh, as they say, it's free and you can do word searches. And so just as a routine matter, as I'm working on the Eustace project, I check the uh, Journal of American Revolution for more and inf- see if there is information there. And I swear to you, I nearly hit the floor when I found Smith's article of Margaret Eustace. Margaret Eustace's daughter, Kitty, married uh, Dr. John Blair in Williamsburg. He was a member of the prominent Blair family that founded the College of William and Mary. Uh, however, the marriage didn't work out, and she tried to sue him for divorce. Amazingly, her divorce lawyer was Thomas Jefferson. And anyway, the this whole matter drags on, and Blair actually dies before she finally gets a divorce from him, which works out to her favor to an extent. Anyway, then there's an ugly lawsuit involving Kitty Eustace Blair over the estate of her dead husband. And this drags in Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, William Byrd Third a whole galaxy of famous people. And Smith even argues that um, this divorce uh inspired some of what Thomas Jefferson would later write in the Declaration of Independence. Now you're saying what has Kitty's mother Margaret Eustace got to do with all of this? Well this was just one of many chapters in Margaret's life, but Margaret Eustace played a big role in played a role in all of this involving Kitty's marriage and her divorce, and getting her dead husband's estate. Margaret is always popping up there, fighting for her daughter, Kitty. And so this, uh, to find out you know, that Margaret was involved in all sorts of incredible stuff before she came to Georgia, was, that made her story just all the more amazing.
0: Give us some background on Margaret Eustace and her family.
1: Well, the more you look at this, the more you see, you know, it's not like the old magic magician saying about the closer you look, the less you'll see this. The closer you look, the more you see and the more incredible the story begin becomes. Margaret Eustace was born Margaret Campbell and she was the cousin to the Duke of Argyle. And you'll remember the Duke of Argyle from that movie, um, Rob Roy but she was his cousin and you don't get much more prominent in lowland Scotland than being the cousin to the Duke of Argyle. Anyway, she was a Campbell and she married Dr. John Eustace. Dr. John Eustace is a character that I wish I could have found more information on. But anyway, she and him and their kids and several Scottish families moved to New York because they are falsely promised by, um, Hold on just a second. Uh, They are falsely promised by Governor Cosby that he would get them 100,000 acres for a Scottish settlement in upstate New York. Anyway, it turns out he was lying about all of that, and that did not happen. So they found themselves stuck in New York. Her father was Captain Lachlan Campbell, who goes back to England and plays a prominent role in defeating Bonnie Prince Charlie, at the battle of uh, in the rebellion of 1745. Well, anyway, eventually the family settles with the state of New York, which is how we came to know uh, the names of Margaret's brothers and sisters uh, from the estate records and uh, the court case files in New York in the colony of New York. Well, her her husband, doctor John Eustace, abandons her and her children and becomes a, a doctor in Wilmington, North Carolina. Then he becomes a prominent physician there. He dies there. She and her family move to Wilmington, where I mean move from Wilmington to uh Virginia, where she moves in with an Archibald Campbell. This is not the Archibald Campbell who will later invade Georgia, and this Archibald Campbell is not her brother. But for the life of me, I could not find out what relation he is to anybody. But presumably, he was some kind of kin. And because this Dr. Archibald Campbell, it was in Alexandria, Virginia, and Margaret Eustace and her children moved in with him, that's how Kitty Eustace meets Dr. John Blair, and marries him and starts that adventure. Like I say, Margaret Eustace led an incredible life going from one great adventure to another, um, to um, the end of her life in Georgia. I mean, I beg your pardon, the end of her life in New York. She actually goes back to New York with her brother, who was a major general in the Continental Army, dies after the war and he leaves her his estate.
0: Talk about Kitty Blair and her divorce. It was very scandalous.
1: Okay, well that that takes a bit of a bit of explaining. Thomas Jefferson was a very complicated character. He was a brilliant musician, a brilliant scientist, a brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant agronomist, a chemist, and the list of things Thomas Jefferson accomplished was amazing. I like what President uh, John F. Kennedy said when he hosted a luncheon for persons who had received the Nobel Prize. He said, This is the greatest collection of human brain power to sit in this room since the days when Thomas Jefferson ate here by himself. But one of the fields Thomas Jefferson was no good at was his chosen profession. He was a lousy lawyer. You did not want Thomas Jefferson defending you in court. He had a high, squeaky voice. He was painfully shy. This guy was no John Adams. This guy was no Perry Mason. But uh, anyway, he was great if you needed somebody to write your will or a deed for you. And so the fact that the great Thomas Jefferson, as we would call him today, was Kitty Blair's lawyer divorce lawyer is not as amazing as it might seem it speaks more to how desperate she was for an attorney now, the question if you if you really know thomas jefferson is a lawyer the question has more to do with uh, why couldn't she have done better for an attorney than thomas jefferson um, you know if you need somebody to found the country or write a declaration of independence Thomas Jefferson's your man, but he was not somebody you needed, you wanted as a lawyer.
0: Talk about the war in Georgia during 1779. What's transpiring?
1: Well, that's a story that has gone too long. Uh, I've been working very hard since I was Georgia's first history intern. And in 1974, I wrote a report on the Battle of Kettle Creek, Georgia. And at that time, there was virtually nothing, almost nothing on Georgia and the American Revolution. And I've been working with a lot of other people to make Georgia's role in the revolution stand out more and for people to see that. In another article that I did for the Journal of the American Revolution, I talked about Georgia's signers of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution, and uh, that that shows that the war in the South and particularly in Georgia uh, is interweaved with the whole history of the war. Georgia was not a sideline. South, The South was not a sideline to the war. The war, it, we, we're, it was all part of, all played a major role in the war from the beginning. Now, Georgia was invaded by the British in December 1778 as part of a plot to get the thousands and thousands of Americans in the Carolinas who still supported the king to join the British army and start a counter revolution that the British honestly believed would restore to them all the colonies south of Maryland. And that that if that happened, then they could force the rest of the colonies to come to a peace treaty peace understanding where the other colonies would come back into the British empire uh, anyway the british invaded georgia from british east florida to the south and from new york under lieutenant colonel archibald campbell after savannah fell uh campbell marched uh, battalions of british troops into the interior of georgia to meet with these loyalists who were supposed to be coming to join the british army campbell reaches augusta and the Loyalists, who were going to meet Campbell in Augusta, are defeated at the Battle of Kettle Creek, Georgia, near what is today Washington, Georgia. And it now is a small county park that's well worth going to see. Uh, so Archibald Campbell bragged that he was the first British officer to ret- to retch a star and a stripe from the American flag. And as uh, as far as, in my opinion, he was the only officer who did that. But as a consequence, Georgia will become the only state in the United States to ever be returned to colony status. Uh, The British restored the colonial assembly, the colonial governor, the colonial militia. Everything about colonial Georgia was put back in place, at least for a year or two. And then the Americans, under people like Elijah Clark and John Twiggs, uh, began a guerrilla war that restored Georgia back to the United States before the revolution ended.
0: Eustace will ask a request via Samuel Elbert. What does she ask?
1: Well, we do not know specifically what it was that she asked. All we have is Elbert's letter. But Elbert is writing to the commander of the American Army in the South, Benjamin Lincoln, asking permission for Margaret Eustace to pass through the British lines. And Elbert goes on to say that the British Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell, who is leading the British Army, is her brother, and that she has a son serving with him. Uh, Elbert also says that she has a son-in-law who is serving with Elbert. The son-in-law serving with Elbert is John Seth Culbert, who is uh, married, the new husband of Kitty, um, Kitty Eustace Blair. And as I say, I did the research and the court cases and the rest of it, and Margaret Eustace had no brother named Archibald, and Archibald Campbell in Georgia had no sisters. And Margaret Eustace did not have a son who was an officer in the British Army. So none of this makes any sense unless Elbert got things really garbled, which would be surprising because that was... Not him. Uh, Samuel Elbert was a great patriot and a great leader in the American Revolution. But this is just, like I said, garbled. Unless you believe that she's lying in hopes that her lies will help get her through the British lines. Um, She will later, by the way, uh, ask for permission to get through the British lines again. And uh, that will be allowed. Although she is suspected all through the war of being a spy for the British and for being a supporter of the King's cause, but there was no action taken against her by the Patriots.
0: Does Margaret ever cross the lines to fulfill her request?
1: Uh, the records are silent on that. The records are silent on that. She does. Uh, if she does not, she's not one of these people who petitions. We have a world of wonderful records from the revolution in Georgia, including petitions by people. Some are loyalists, some are patriots, some are just caught in the war, where they're writing to the royal governor of Georgia and his council pleading for this or pleading for that or whatever. We have all these accounts, that is money accounts, from the war where people are being paid for property that they lost or for being caught up in the Money the British government owes them, money the American government owes them, and in none of this does Margaret Eustace's name ever appear, um, which is very odd uh in this, so no, we don't. We just have hints, for example, after a second known trip through the British lines, where she was probably trapped in savannah with other civilians, when an American and French army. Stormed the British lines around Savannah in a failed attack on October 9, 1779. She was probably one of the civilians hiding in bomb shelters during that unsuccessful siege. Um. Anyway, after that, there is a a report. A claim is made that she's back at Silver Bluff, South Carolina, and she's saying ugly things about the American cause. But the records are no more are not specific about that or uh, what was done about it afterwards. I mean, George's council orders an investigation, but we have no results from that investigation.
0: How does this event help us understand the Revolutionary Era better?
1: Well, the traditional way of viewing the American Revolution is blue-coated soldiers under George Washington fighting red-coated soldiers under the British. The traditional view of the American Revolution doesn't look at the loyalists and and Tories, that is, the Americans who fought or stood by the king's cause. It doesn't talk about the guerrilla warfare and the militiamen. It does not talk about women. It does not talk about African Americans. It does not really talk about Indians. But you see, the American Revolution was not a bunch of white guys in pretty uniforms shooting at each other at point-blank range. It was a lot of people it was children it was women it was people who were black and people who were red and people who were portuguese and people who were uh foreigners and people who were native-born americans they're all there and they all have their stories to tell they were all victims of the war and they were all part of the war and when you follow the incredible adventures of margaret eustace you have to wonder how many other stories like that are there out there that remain to be discovered and remain to be told?
0: Robert Scott Davis, thank you for joining us.
1: You are most welcome.
0: The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying. So long.